The scripture today is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 20. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I have a friend who's a pastor, and he's an older guy, and at his church, you still wear a suit and tie. They're not on Carlton Landing casual. And every morning, every Sunday morning, he'll go to his church, and he'll put the finishing touches, or sometimes a little bit more than that, on the sermon for that morning. And as he prepares, he, he had gotten into this habit. He had these old shoes at home. They were like yard shoes, like shoes that you wear around the house. I mean, ugly, really ugly shoes. And he brought them up to the office with him because he didn't like wearing his dress shoes for that long on a Sunday. So what he would do was he would keep them under his desk, and when he would start to prepare his sermon on Sundays or when he was there during the week, he would just slip into that old pair of shoes, prepare, and then when it was time to go out and preach, he would slip into his new shoes and go out there. Well, one Sunday... He walks out on the stage, and he doesn't have the benefit of having a pulpit like this. He has a clear pulpit. And he walks out in these old, dirty shoes. He's dressed to the nines in a suit. He's got his tie tied up tight. He's perfectly tailored, and he has got these ugly yard shoes on. Now, being a great preacher, he decides to turn this into an illustration for the morning. See, that's the key, is to act like you meant to do this. There's a spiritual purpose behind this. And he said to everybody, you know what? I'm sorry. 
I've slipped into an old pair of shoes. And this morning, we're going to talk about what to do when you slip into an old pair of shoes. See, the point of the text this morning and of all of chapter 4 of Ephesians is if you're a new creation, then you have a new wardrobe. You actually have a whole new self. The, the text of this passage is so clear. It's not that we're putting on new clothes like it's a sham and what's underneath we're hiding. It's the closest metaphor that we can use to say if you are a new creation, Paul says, put on the new self. Put on the new human being that is being recreated to look like God in every way. See, in order to understand chapter 5, you have to go back a little bit to chapter 4, verse 22. This is the summary of what it means to grow as a Christian. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, which is being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Your new self is the renewed image of God. You are supposed to get up every morning, and like it says in chapter 6, put on a new wardrobe, like the armor of God that's fitting for the new life that you have and fitting for the new heart that you've been given. So in chapter 5, Paul begins by saying, Your new life is characterized like this. Be an imitator of God as his beloved child. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you become a Christian, things change. Things change in your life. That's what we covered last week. Your heart changes, your mind changes, your actions changes, but If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know the feeling of, I don't think I've changed. Really, I continuously slip into the old ways of life. The old person comes peeking through. I look like what I used to look like. I'm not looking like what I want to look like. I look like the old self, not the new self. And Paul is sensitive to this because Paul understands what it's like to still feel sin in your life. To still feel like the old person when you're trying to become the new person. But the fact of the matter is, you have changed. This is like when we baptize people. If you watch when when they baptize people, they say, you have been buried with Christ in his death. And you have been raised to do all the same things you used to do. Right? We don't say that. That would be terrible if you said that. You You guys been to a baptism service lately? You don't say, you've been raised with Christ and nothing has changed. You say, you have been raised with Christ so that you can walk in the newness of life. In the newness of life. So Paul says, okay, how do you change? How do you fundamentally change as a new creation in Christ? And this passage can be broken down into two parts. The first part is in verses 1 and 2, which is the why Why have we changed? And what is our motivation for changing? And then verses 3 through 20 are the how of changing. So why do we change and how do we change? Well, in the first part, your life is changing because there's something fundamentally different about you. Right? There's nothing more frustrating than just trying to change, whether it's a diet, whether it's a new habit, whether it's something new that you want to do as a skill, there is nothing more frustrating than trying to exert external change when there's been nothing different internally. 
Because the older you get, the more you realize, I'm pretty much the same person. And if I continue to just do the things I've been doing, I'm going to continue to be that same person. It's going to have to be something fundamentally different about me if the outcome of my life is going to be any different, right? This is why New Year's resolutions typically fail by March, because you're the same person this year that you were last year. And if you're not, then nothing is going to change in your life. But Paul says something has changed. You need to be an imitator of God because you are now his beloved child. You are now his beloved child. In fact, the whole Christian life is a testament to the transforming power of being loved. Being loved by God as his child. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think this is one of the most powerful phrases in the New Testament. And you can tell this because Paul uses it several other places. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. This is what it says in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in Christ is a new creation. I live because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this, this concept here is even better than what we can express in the ESV or in the English. And, the, and I don't do that. I don't say, oh, well, you know what the original says, because a lot of times you're like, the, the English says four, but if you look it up in the Greek, it really means four. Is what usually word studies like, wow, that was so enlightening. Three years of seminary, and I, I couldn't have known that on my own. But there's a lot of times there's a sense that you need to get, and that's the case with this word. Four can mean a lot of things in English, but it really means one thing in the underlying text. In fact, somebody did a study where they looked at property deeds in the ancient world. And what they were looking for is how this preposition, this is the preposition huper, it's where we get hyper in English, or uber in German, which we now use in English as an adjective. That word can mean over but on documents and legal contracts, it means something else. This is the word that you would write if you were signing on behalf of somebody else. Because in the ancient world, very few people could sign their name. Very few people could even scratch out the letters to make a distinguishing mark that would be recognizable as them. And so what you would have is when you would sign a deed or a business contract, you would have somebody come in and sign for someone else. Who pair this person? On behalf of them, I will sign this deed. On behalf of this person who is not educated enough, who is not able, who is not powerful enough in society, I will sign my name on behalf of theirs. Christ loved us and gave himself on our behalf. He signed in the place that we were unable to sign. He became, on our behalf, the representative of what we should have gotten. But in our case, it wasn't a deed to a home. It wasn't a contract of money. He became sin for us, that we might become righteousness in him. Amen. He it's like that great hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. He gave himself for me. He gave himself 
on behalf of me. But there's another thing that this word means. It can mean to lay something over the top of something. Not just on behalf of it, but taking what is coming for that thing. Like in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says, Christ became a curse for us so that we might not bear the curse of the law. This is a picture of Jesus on the cross stretched out wide over the top of us. One of the commentators says, the curse of the law hangs like a blade over the head of everyone who does not live up to the law. But Christ became a curse for us, over us, that the blade fell on Christ instead of upon us. Christ standing over us and between us, and the curse of the law fell on him. See, this Ephesians puts it a little bit differently. You, by nature, are a child of wrath, it says in chapter 2. Because of our misdeeds, the blade that hangs over us is the wrath, the just wrath of God for sin. And here Paul says, but Christ laid himself over you, protecting you on your behalf so that the justice of God fell on him and the pleasure and the love of God fell on you. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I had a friend point this out to me the other day. Do you guys remember or have you seen recently the new protest trend is for people to go into these museums and throw like cans of soup on these masterpiece paintings? Have you seen this? Bless you if you haven't. It's so enraging. And a couple of weeks ago, these two people go into the National Gallery in London and they take a can of soup and they throw it on Van Gogh's sunflowers. This is, if you've ever been to the National Gallery, this is like their crown jewel. It's worth over $100 million. It's really priceless if you're trying to estimate how much it would be worth. And they throw this soup all over the wall, all over this painting, and then they glue themselves to the wall so that they can get their message out. And when I saw this, I was so angry about this. Why would you take something that beautiful and, and that emblematic of what God has given us to be, which is creators and co-creators, and it's in this museum so that everyone can see it, and now you've ruined it. But that afternoon, the museum released a statement. They prepare for this kind of thing. The National Gallery put out a statement that said, there is some minor damage to the frame, but the image is unharmed. Because unbeknownst to the public, they put a thin film of glass over these paintings. So that the frame is a little bit damaged, but when they removed the glass, the image was revealed to be perfectly as it was the moment it was painted. See, the truth is, your sin, the weight of the law, has marred the image of God in you. It is almost unrecognizable if God had never intervened, but God planned for such a thing. Christ, on your behalf, takes the stain of sin, and when the sin is removed, the image is perfectly restored. See, this is the why of Christian ethics. You are the image of of God. You are a beloved child of God. So 
Live like it. Live like who you really are inside. This isn't about masquerading as something you're not. This is about revealing the true image of who you are. You're beloved. You've been bought with a price. You've had the perfect son of God on your behalf. Take your sin so that you can live for God. Now he says, take off the old life, put on the new life, and as you encounter sin in your life, here's what you should do about it. Number one, walk in love. Verse two, be imitators of God and walk in love. And here's your model. Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You could hardly find a more controversial word or more defined word than love in our culture today. But the Bible has a very specific understanding of the word love. This is love, John says. Not that we love God, not that we do nice things for him, not that we do things that make us feel good inside. This is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us and gave his son on our behalf. That's the definition of love. But Paul's going to clarify something here. It's not just every self-sacrificial act, right? It's not just altruism that is Christian love. It is Christian love when you give yourself on behalf of someone else as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? All love in some way is God-directed, right? There's, there's no love that in some way or another isn't an offering to God, right? Paul says it this way earlier in this book, speaking the truth in love, right? That doesn't just mean like 50% truth with a love coating on it so it doesn't hurt so much. It's from the very roots of what it is, it is loving and it is true because it is on behalf of others, but it is presented to God. So we are supposed to walk in love, and this is the frame that makes all of these commands make sense. Right? I think one of the major indictments on the church today, and I would include myself in this, is we know what the Bible says to do and not do. We have no idea why. So the Bible says sexual immorality should not be named among you. And we get all kinds of pressure from everywhere in our culture and from some places inside the church. And we say, I know the Bible says that, but I don't know why God would make this rule that seems so harsh and out of step with the culture. But this passage is so clear. The reason that you should abstain from sexual immorality and uncleanness and impurity and idolatry in your life is because it is substituting a marred form of love for a godly form of love. So, for example, biblical sexual ethics are so clear scripturally and so hard to do in your life. And here's why. Because God has decreed from the very beginning that love, especially sexual love, will be a picture of Christ's love for the church. That substitutionary, lay your life down, put your interest to the side, offer your love to God kind of sacrifice. And so we move from lust, which is fundamentally a way of ordering our desires to where we are satisfied, to love, which is ordering our desires to where the other person and God are satisfied. Right, so it's easy to say all uh, when, when he talks about this word porneia, all sexual sin is any outside of the covenant of marriage. Right? That is like radical to say that. But if you understand what Paul's saying here, he says, let that not even be named among you because you're moving from 
an old kind of love to a new kind of love. Right? Watch how this works for all the rest of them. That's the most controversial. Nobody's sticking up for the next two, but watch, it's the same thing. He says, let not sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, which is idolatry, he says later, be named among you. Covetousness is your old desire for the creation, and now you have a new desire for the creator. Right? This is what Romans 1 says. All sin is at root a suppression of the truth that it's only the creator that should be worshipped. Not us, not idols, not our desires, not anything else. It's just God, the creator, who deserves worship. Everything else is idolatry. So every one of us in some way or another is guilty of this list. And so the Christian life is now we're turning to love God. And we're turning to worship him. And we're turning to be selfless. And we're turning towards his approval and not anybody else's. And that's what constitutes walking in love. See, he goes on to say, make sure of this, that everyone, and he lists these same three sins again, because in the ancient world, this would have been characteristic of the entire world, right? Sometimes we think that we struggle by not doing certain things or doing things that the Bible commands in a way that nobody else in history has struggled. These three sins are like the trio for the pagan culture in the first century, right? So there's a reason he lists these twice. It's like, if you're going to cover everything, Every desire of the heart outside of God, what three words would I use? I don't know, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. I don't want those things to be named among you because they reveal, he says, that you don't have a share in the kingdom of God. And this isn't just because the people that act really great have a share in the kingdom of God and the people that don't, don't. This isn't because God is picking on people arbitrary, arbitrarily and some people not. It's because to have a share in the kingdom of God, you have to have a share in Christ, and if your heart is given to something else, you don't have a share in Christ. Right? This is what he's saying. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not pernicious. It's not something that he's saying that will single people out. It's that what we talked about last week. If you want to change, it has to be your heart. The only thing God requires of your life is that you repent and turn to him. Right? We know what to do with sin. We turn to God. We repent of it. We confess we are healed, we are restored, we walk in the newness of life. It doesn't matter what your sin is, it doesn't matter if it's fashionable or not, it doesn't matter if you want to keep it secret or not, it doesn't matter if people applaud you for it or not. The only thing to do with sin is turn to Christ. Turn to the one who gave himself on your behalf and be free and be healed and walk in the newness of life together. Now this is incremental. It would be great if we we're like, all right, that's awesome. I'm never sinning again. I'm never going to do anything wrong again. That's great. I just needed to hear that from you, Cole. That really cleared it up for me. Now I'm going to live the perfect, 100% faithful life I've always wanted. The Christian life is incremental. We will all be putting sin to death in our life until Christ comes or we go to be with him. I don't know if you've seen the book Atomic Habits. It's been out for a long time, but now it's like all over the bestseller list. And so I thought, well, if it's that good, I better read it. So James Clear wrote this book. It's about how to change your life through habits. And the thing that really struck me in one of the opening chapters was he talks about if you just get 1% better every day and rely on the compounding interest principle, how much better will you be? Right, Because it does seem like you could be 1% more 
forgiving today than you were yesterday. You could be 1% more self-sacrificial to God and others today than you were yesterday. You could be 1% more honest today than you were yesterday. He says, and if you do this for a year, 1% every day for a year compounded is 37 times what it was at the beginning of the year. See, this is the brilliance of what God has done through his spirit. His spirit comes in and convicts us and shows us how to live, and we just take one step towards him. And it only becomes visible in the rearview mirror how much God has done in your life. So instead of the crippling burden of saying, I've got, I've, I've got to live up to every single thing today, start today by saying 1% in this area. God, help me. Spirit, help me to just make one decision for God today that I didn't yesterday. And God will take care of the results. Slowly but surely the image will be restored in your life to where you look more and more like your true father in heaven. So the second thing we do is we walk in the light. We walk in love and we walk in the light. In verse 7, Paul begins to say, therefore do not become partners with people who are practicing these things. For at one time you were darkness. Right? This, should make it, this should make sure we never think that Christians think they're better than everybody else. You weren't walking in darkness. You were darkness. You were in the kingdom of darkness, it says. You were serving the Lord of darkness, it says in Colossians. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as a child of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to God. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, it would be interesting if he had said, quit them. That would be good. Instead of walking in the darkness, stop that. No, instead, expose them. Expose them because everything that comes into the light becomes visible. In fact, it says everything that comes into the light becomes lighted, is what this means. It becomes manifest. It becomes healed. And he says, therefore it says, and this is from Isaiah, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See, the key to living the way this passage describes is not outer effort first. It's internal exposure to God first. You will never be freed from something that you don't confess. That's just the way God has designed the universe. You can nurse a secret sin for years and years and years, and nobody else might know about it, but someday it will grow into something monstrous. Sin grows in the dark, but righteousness grows in the light. So if you are a child of God, all you have to do is come into the light. Start exposing things in the light. Start with God first. Tell God the things that you, misguided as it may be, we all do it, have been hiding from him, pretending like he doesn't see you in these moments. And bring it to him and say, God, light this up. Would you clean this? Would you make your face to shine upon it and heal me of it? Until you do that, you will never be free. You will never be free. But if you do it, we know what to do with sin. Here's something that Christians easily forget. When you have sin in your life as a Christian, we know exactly what to do with it. It's not surprising to God. It's not a crisis in your life. What it is is an opportunity to do what you always do with every sin. Repent of it, turn it over to God, confess it where it needs to be confessed, be healed, and live a new life. That's it. 
Every sin. Doesn't matter if it's small and secret or big and open and scandalous. Turn it over to God, repent of it, be freed from it, and watch him conform you to the image of his son. And here's the last thing. Walk by the Spirit. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. This word actually is redeeming. Sometimes you see that in the English. Redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So some of you listening are like, oh, great, here we go. We got sex first. Now we've got uh, alcohol here. We're just hitting everything in this passage. But it's because God's talking about an orientation of your heart. So why does he say, don't get drunk with wine, but walk by the Spirit, right? Why are those things contrasts? Well, think back to the day of Pentecost, right? This is an example in the Bible I don't think we think about enough. When the people at Pentecost have the Holy Spirit, they begin celebrating and praising and rejoicing in a way that what do the bystanders say? These people have got to be drunk, And he's like, it's only like 9 a.m. in the morning. These people can't be drunk. It's got to be something else. See, because the Spirit and anything else that fills you are vying for being at the driver's seat of your life. The reason that these are opposites is because the Holy Spirit has been given. If you are a Christian, it says in chapter 1, you have been sealed with the Spirit. And Jesus makes this unbelievable claim in John chapter 16 where he says, you know what? It's better for me to leave. It would be better if I were not here for you because if I leave, the Spirit will come. And if the Spirit comes, He is going to convict you and He's going to remind you of truth and He's going to fill your life with the things of God. And the Spirit is going to make sure that the loudest voice in your life is God's. And so if you want to live that way, you've got to make sure you eliminate all the other really loud voices, right? And this isn't just external voices. This is anything that fills you, anything that comes into your life and shouts louder than the Spirit of God, right? And the best example that Paul can think of is like like when you're drunk. That would be a great example of something drowning out the Spirit, something taking the Spirit and moving Him to the passenger seat while it sits in the driver's seat. But you could substitute so many other things for this. You could substitute anything that takes your mind from listening to God to listening to something else, and it would work in this passage. Don't let anything speak louder than the Spirit of God in your life. And he, and he ends this passage by saying, here's how you know you got it. Here's how you know you've got it. When your heart is filled with the Spirit, when God is the loudest voice in your life, it comes out in song and gratefulness. It comes out in that language that the heart speaks that sometimes your mouth can't quite catch up with it, right? I was, I'm reading a book by a psychologist named Ian McGilchrist, and it's called The Matter with Things, and he's an evolutionary psychologist, but one of the things that he's studied is brain development. And he has a contention that music actually came about in the human psyche before speech. Like, from his vantage point, from his paradigm, what developed first was melody and music and then speech. And so he argues that music resonates with a heart 
at a level that speech doesn't. It's more prime, it's more visceral than speech is. And I think that's the point that Paul's making here. How do you know if you've gotten it on a heart level? Your heart begins to sing and make melody of thankfulness to God. They point out this really interesting experiment. These French psychologists go to a tribe in the Amazon where they've never had any encounter with the Western world before. And they sit all of these tribal leaders and chieftains down in this hut, and they pull out a laptop. And they open up the laptop, and they begin playing all these things from the Western world. They play like some documentaries of what people look like. They show them the moon landing, and they are horrified. The tribesmen are repulsed. They think it is the most barbaric thing they've ever seen. They're like, you're doing that, you're disturbing the moon, you're doing this with clothes and with the environment, and you're carrying yourselves this way, you look odd. I mean, they, they can't believe that this is what people do. But then they show them a video of Maria Callas singing an aria from Costa Diva, which is a Bellini opera. And as she begins to sing, they pan the camera around the room and you start to see all these people's eyes fill with tears. And they have face paint on, they are in tribal garb, and they're watching this sophisticated Italian soprano sing this song, and they begin to cry. And the psychologists ask them what they're experiencing. And the chieftain of the tribe says, we cannot understand her, but there's something divine here. There's something divine divine here. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that when we use our gifts, when we walk by the Spirit, people will walk in among us and say, God must be here. God must be among these people. When the Spirit gets control of your heart, when you begin to walk in love, when you get to display the image of God that you are being restored into, it comes out in the music of thanksgiving and praise and psalms. And that resonates to a level where people say, looking at their life, God must be among them. I want people to say that about us. God must be among them. Not, we don't really understand culturally what they're doing. We don't, we, we don't really get what it is that they're saying, but when they talk about what God is doing in them, that we understand that. We understand the Spirit overflowing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and gratitude in their hearts for a Savior who loved them and gave himself on their behalf. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough. We can't come up with a way to praise you enough for sending your son on our behalf. But what we can do, Lord, is we can give you our lives. And we can love you with the love that you designed us to run on. We can give ourselves for other people. We can sacrifice. We can use what you've given to us for others. We can overflow with love for you. Father, what we can do is we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for you, holy and pleasing, delighted in, like little children who come and give you a gift with our whole heart. So Father, by your Spirit this week, drown out all the other voices so that we can live for you. 
Father, make us into the kind of people who walk in wisdom and in love and in compassion and in holiness. Father, we ask you to transform us every day, even just a little bit, so that the image that you created us to be would shine forth and people would see it and praise you. People would come running back to you because they see what you've done in sinners like us. Father, we also can lift up our voices to you this morning. We can lift up our hearts and, Father, fill our hearts so that we overflow now as we sing your praises, as we talk about following you because of what you've done for us in your son Jesus. Father, we love you with the love that you've given us. So fill us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.